Amotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. are the days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord and these are the days of your servant Moses righteousness being restored and though these are days of great trials of famine and darkness and sorrow are the voice in the desert crying prepare ye the way of the Lord behold he comes riding on the clouds shining like the sun at the trumpet's call so lift your voice it's a year of jubilee and out of Zion's hill are the days of your servant David rebuilding a temple of praise and these are the days of the harvest the fields are white in the world and we are your laborers in your vineyard Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone again. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles now 
to Genesis chapter 25. Uh, we're beginning at verse 19. And this Shabbat, our Torah portion, is called Toledot. And it comes from the word, uh, first words where it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Isaac became the father of, of or Abraham became the father of Isaac. The word generations is the word toledot, the plural word for generations. When the Bible uh, uses this word and refers to the generations, of, it's talking about the life of the person. So when we say it's the generations of this, we're, we're talking about their life. Now, there's a little irony in this Torah portion being entitled this because what is actually going to follow in this portion is that Isaac is there, he's the father, but it really focuses in on the birth of Isaac's twin sons. And so it's going to tell us the story about how Rebekah will give birth to Esau and to Jacob. Uh, and that's what the portion will be primarily about. Um, but at the same time, there's a kind of a, a natural truth that's taking place. All of you who have raised family and so forth, you know that when you first come out of your youth, that everything is focused on you, it's about your life, you find your spouse, you get married, you have this big wedding, and it's all about you, and it's all about your wife, and, and, and so forth, and then the moment you start having children, your life goes away, and it's all about your kids' lives, and your life suddenly becomes dedicated to your children's life. So that's essentially what we have in this story, in this portion. It says the life of Isaac, the generations of Isaac, but it actually starts talking about his life being his children and what will happen from there. We should also take note of this, that the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three fathers that we have in the Genesis account given to us, that there's a lot of information. There was, in fact, a couple of portions in the past, uh, Shabbats, that we had that was about Abraham. This is going to be the one single portion that is really about Isaac. Now, Isaac was mentioned when we were talking about Abraham, but the emphasis was on Abraham. And um, finally, with the life of Sarah, the Hagia Sarah, uh, last week's portion, why we get Isaac married. We, we bring Rebecca to him and, and he gets married. And now it's time to talk about Isaac. And we immediately fast forward to Isaac's sons. And this is going to be introducing to us Esau and Jacob. And then the other portions will tend to focus in on Jacob. So in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's great emphasis on Abraham. There's great emphasis on Jacob. Isaac's in the middle and there's not that much that focuses in on him. And for those of you who've had, um, say, three or more children, you do know there's a tendency for the middle child, <laughs> the middle one in the, you know, isn't the firstborn, isn't the baby the family. Uh, the, the, you have to really go out of your way to put, give some special emphasis to the middle child so they don't feel like they got enclosed in by the other two ends of the siblings. And that is true in this story. We see that same element in the presentation of the stories of our fathers. So with that as an introduction, let's look a little bit further and let's see what uh, follows with Isaac's life and uh, what transpires. Um, verse 20, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. Now, I want you to take note of that for a moment. He was 40 years old when he got married to Rebecca. And his mother died shortly before that. And he went with his father, you know, in Genesis 22, he went up for the binding. So how do we think that Isaac was? We think Isaac was well into his 30s when he went with his father and was carrying up. He was a grown man. By the way, Yeshua was 30 years old and we estimate 33 years old when he offered his life. It wouldn't shock me a bit to discover after we get into the kingdom that uh, Isaac turned out to be the same age as Yeshua Messiah was when he gave his life, when he went up to do 
the model, the metaphor of the sacrifice, the Lamb of God sacrifice. So that's an interesting thing to take note of that the Lord is doing here. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord, oh, excuse me, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now remember, it's descendants from Isaac that will be the fulfillment of God's great promise to Abraham. Um, and uh, Abraham is still alive at this point. He has not passed. So Abraham is still alive. This promise of through the descendants through Isaac is, is still of paramount importance. I'm certain Abraham must have had some conversations with Isaac about, hey, when, when are you going to get some kids going? And, you know, like a typical parents are asking their married children, when, when are we going to get the family going? You know, kind of thing. Well, you can imagine what the conversations must have been like between Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah since God gave this incredible promise to Abraham, his father, that in his descendants, they would be like the the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea and so forth. And he's not having it. So it says now that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife so that she might conceive. Uh, And she did conceive, verse 22. But the children struggled together with her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And um, so she's having a very difficult pregnancy. She has twins in her womb, and she's having great difficulty uh, with this pregnancy. By the way, if, you, uh, if you've gone through these family cycles before, you know sometimes a pregnancy for a wife usually works out beautifully. Sometimes it's difficult, uh, and it's an area of concern for the whole family. So here's Isaac and his wife, and she's having difficulty in this pregnancy. So she's very concerned. So whereas Isaac had prayed for her to conceive, she now feels she needs to go and consult with somebody. What is going on in here? Why is this happening? So she went uh, to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body, and the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. God is making a sovereign choice as to whom will be the ones he works with. It turns out that just as Ishmael wasn't part of the plan of God for to be the descendants of Abraham, nor was it the plan of God that the firstborn or the older would be the plan of God, it would be the younger one that would be the plan of God. Uh, for it, and God is making this choice. By the way, let's just stop and think about that for a moment. Does God have that right? I believe he does. If he's creator heavens and the earth, and we're all here because of the breath he's breathed into us, our lives are dependent upon him, then he has some rights about what to say about what is permitted and what's going to happen and, and what is his will uh, for us in our life. Now, the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and his name was Esau. Esau actually means red. It actually means that. And verse 26, And afterwards his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob, or in the Hebrew, Yaakov. Yah means hand. Uh, The letter um, Yod is in the shape of a hand. It kind of looks like that. That's the shape of your hand is the actual shape of the Hebrew letter Yod. Yah is the simplest form of speaking the letter. And so it's hand, ekev, on the heel. Later on in Deuteronomy, we're going to have a Torah portion called ekev, which means on the heel of, or immediately following. And this is how Jacob gets his name. By the way, just a little uh, uh, trivia for you. Um, The King James Bible, you know, James, you know, the book of James, that's not the name of the book in Hebrew. It's the book of Jacob. But James is closely associated with Jacob. 
And so when King James paid for the translation of the Bible, the translators wanted to make sure the king would be honored, so they changed Jacob's name into James. So they made it the book of James. But in the New Testament, the apostle, the brother of the Lord, his name was Jacob, Yaakov. Uh, when we get to the kingdom and you get to meet the apostle Jacob, don't be shocked. There is no apostle James. There is an apostle, though, called Jacob, Yaakov, and his name was after the patriarch. Um, now, it begins to describe the life of these two young men, Esau and Jacob. Um, Verse 27, and when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. And this expression here about Jacob, that he was a peaceful man, it's a very interesting expression. We use the term peaceful, but in the Hebrew, it really means he was complete. And when it says he was complete, it means that he was content with what he had. He was not uh, always uh, ambitious or egotistical. In other words, what, what had been provided to him, he was satisfied with it. He was content with it. He was at peace with things. He wasn't a driven man. He, w he didn't have issues compelling him that were disturbing his personality or his character. Um, it, was, it was showing that this is a guy that you were going to like. If you got around this guy, you'd like this guy. Um, he was a complete man. He, he was at peace with himself and with everyone around him. He wasn't in contention with anyone or anything. And the inference uh, uh, to Esau is almost the exact opposite. Esau is a driven man. He is compelled to do things. And this is what gets him in trouble at various times, because he's always, if you will, pushing the envelope on things. He's always taking things somewhat to the extreme. Um, and and he's, not, he's not willing to take counsel too much. He's not looking for the peaceful thing to do. He's, 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 he's doing his own thing under his own terms and with his own ego being driven by himself. So he was not at peace with himself. He, was a, he would go out and, and basically do his own thing. So this is a sharp contrast uh, between these two young men, uh, how Esau and um, uh, Jacob are being viewed and, from this. Um, and then suddenly uh, we have this interesting story. We believe this story that begins about um, Esau coming in and wanting a, um, a taste of soup that Jacob has made is that we believe that these were young men approximately the age of 15 or 16 years old. Um, verse 28, now Esau loved, or now Isaac loved Esau because he had a, a taste for game, but Rebekah loves Jacob. This also adds to the, the interesting contrast between these two brothers. The older one, Esau, has, seems to have a stronger relationship with his father, uh, and the younger one seems to have a stronger relationship with his mother. And this is also part of the contrast uh, between these two young men. And again, we believe that at the time frame that this story is about to unfold, that they were about the age of 15. And in the ancients, why he would have been out hunting at this point, he would have been out doing his thing um, to get his life going. Verse 29, when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Edom again is another name like Esau, meaning red. But Jacob said, first or today, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die, so of what use is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, Today, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The oldest, or the firstborn, is the one who's deserving 
of the birthright blessing. And by the way, in the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going all the way down through the story of Jacob, this birthright blessing is of paramount importance and carries with us a huge spiritual instruction to us. The fact of the matter is that the Messiah is regarded as the firstborn among many brethren. That is the firstborn who received the inheritance of the father. Uh, and the, um, the, the other sons will get some inheritance from the father, but the firstborn will get the majority. He will get the most herit, uh, inheritance from the father. So who gets the birthright blessing is the one who gets the inheritance or the heritage that comes from the father. And it becomes very apparent here that Jacob desires the heritage and the birthright that comes from his father Isaac, from Abraham, Esau could care less. Part of the reason I think that Esau fell into that was because he was out running around doing his own thing. He didn't see himself connected to his grandfather Abraham or to his father Isaac for that much. Oh, yes, yeah, his father liked the food that he brought in, but, but he wasn't really connected with him. Uh, and in the form of these spiritual things that we're talking about here. And I, I'll give you a hint that this, this part of this birthright thing extends also into the story of Jacob and his sons. Reuben, who is his firstborn, will not receive the birthright blessing. It will be Joseph who will get it. And Joseph will pass down to, that Jacob will actually pass it all the way down to Ephraim, the secondborn of Joseph. It will not be the natural firstborn. It wasn't Ishmael. It wasn't Isaac. It wasn't Reuben. Or excuse me, it wasn't uh, Ishmael. It was Isaac. It wasn't um, uh, Esau. It was Jacob. And it wasn't Reuben. It was passed down to Joseph. And even in Joseph's descendants, it wasn't Manassas. It was instead Ephraim. Uh, and this becomes uh, one of the central stories. When you go through all of the book of Genesis, who gets the birthright blessing is of paramount importance. By the way, because Christianity has not emphasized this, because they've walked away from these principles and these things, you know, starting their faith with, with Jesus Christ in the New Testament, they start believing the Bible from Matthew 1, uh, they've dismissed all of this. Guess who has exploited this? The Mormons. It is the Mormons who've gone back and recaptured these teachings about the birthright blessing. And so when they start talking about Joseph Smith, when they start talking about Joseph, they liken unto the story of the birthright blessing going to uh, Joseph, the son of Jacob. They transfer it over to Joseph Smith so that Joseph Smith can bring the birthright blessing to the Mormons. And it is a central part of their teaching that they believe the Mormons are the Latter-day Saints. Okay? Where do they get that whole concept from? It's from this teaching about the birthright blessing. Uh, there's a very famous book uh, that's written uh, many years ago, um, The uh, Scepter and the Birthright. It talks about how the Jews, Judah got the scepter, but Joseph got the birthright. And so they allow the Jews to have the kingship, but we, uh, the descendants of Joseph, Joseph Smith, we get the birthright blessing. And that's the reason why you've got the Mormons sitting in Utah with a temple and the angel of Moroni and all of this other stuff going on is because they've taken these teachings, which the Christian world basically left alone, didn't lay claim to, they've laid claim to them and then formed their particular theology and their particular doctrines from it. We who are messianics, we also lay claim to these teachings and so forth. But it is explaining to us who the remnant are. It's explaining to us who, was, who are the chosen people of God. And God's been in the business of choosing people from the very beginning. From the very beginning, he's been choosing people and continues to do so. Now, from this event of um, Esau coming in and he's hungry and he wants some of this soup... 
we have this little detailed story about it, but we don't really get the context of what's really going on here so that you can understand, because God is going to conclude from this event. Are you ready for this? What God's going to say about this event that took place, that because Esau despised his birthright, God hates Esau, but he loves Jacob. How, you know, and when you hear those words, I know the first time I heard them, I was going, wait a minute, you know, God is a, is a just and, and fair God. I mean, why would he stand up and say, well, he's all I hate, Jacob I love. You know, I, I understand God makes choices, but it doesn't seem that righteous to make that kind of a choice. I mean, you know, what, what is going on here? Well, once you understand the context of this story, maybe you'll come to understand a little bit better as to why God took that posture. You see, this meal that Jacob's making, this lentil stew, is a mourner's meal. This was done at Abraham's funeral. Jacob had made a meal for the mourners of the loss of Abraham. And in the Hebrew tradition, the mourner's meal is made with foodstuffs that are round or in a circle. And lentils are this little round uh, bean pea thing. I'm not sure exactly whether it's a pea or a bean. Uh, but it's a little round vegetable thing, and you cook them up in stew. They soften up. They're very tasty, um, especially if you mix any meat broth or into them, whatever. They're very delicious. Um, and he's made this mourner's meal. The reason why they use round things is because they're looking at the cycle of life. There was a beginning to the life, and then there's an end to the life, and we come back around. And, and, there's a, and by the way, life is a whole set of cycles. Um, in Psalms 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Actually, that's the Greek translation. In the Hebrew, it's actually he leads me in the cycles of righteousness. The cycles of righteousness are the stations and stages of life. Um, just step back for a moment. We all can agree with this, that life comes in these cycles. You know, what goes around comes around. And when you first are born, while well, you're small and you're little and people feed you and take care of you and change your pants, you know, and then you grow and you become established and, and you take care of yourself and you uh, get a career, you get a job, you, you get married, you, you have a family, you have children, and then you get old. And the older you get, the more you start reverting back to when you were a kid. You know, when you were a kid, well, you can't be that responsible for everything you do. When you get too old, you, you can't really be held accountable and responsible for all of everything that takes place. And like a little kid who stumbles around and falls down every once in a while, old people do the same thing. They get up, they walk around, and all of a sudden they stumble and they fall. They look like a little kid, you know, when they fall down. By the way, when they fall down this time, it hurts compared to the first time. Because when you're little and don't weigh very much and so forth, everything just bounces. But when you're older, you know, you fall down, you start breaking things, you know. Um, but we all have this sense of life. What goes around comes around. And there's a cycle to life. Plants do the same thing. We see in all of the living things this cycle of, of life um, taking place. And so here we are at Abraham's funeral and they're eating this meal, this mourner's meal with a reminder of the cycle of life. That Abraham had a life and he lived with the Lord, now he's passed and others go on to live and so forth. And welcome to the human race and help and welcome to this mortal existence. If I could, let me just add this one other element just philosophically about the cycle of life. The Bible tells us that Adam, the first man, was formed out of the dust of the earth. That God took some of the, the, the elements of the earth and he formed a man and then he breathed life into him, breathed the spirit into him and he became a living soul. Now, he gave birth to, he helped father others, and they continue on, they father others. And here we are, since that first man, we, we've all been fathered and mothers in the line that has brought us into existence uh, since that has taken place. But every one of us, at the end of our life, we do the Adam thing. We return back to the earth. 
We were made originally out of the earth, and we return back to the earth. Our bodies return back to the earth. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, back to the earth. Um, And that's part of the cycle. The cycle of the earth is also the cycle of life for us. Abraham is now passing, and they're holding the mourner's meal. It's very clear that Jacob wants to honor the life of his grandfather Abraham wants to comfort his father Isaac at the loss of his father. He's prepared this meal. Now, here comes Esau. Right off the bat, we notice Esau's late to the funeral. If they're cooking the meal, this is after the ceremony has been done for the burial. Abraham's already in the grave at Machpelah, they're now eating the mourner's meal the seven days they mourn afterwards. He's shown up late. Esau did not make it in time for Abraham's funeral. He had other important things to do. So the disrespect shown to his grandfather Abraham is of paramount importance. He's not going into where the family is at. He's going where his brother's at, you know, in the back area where they're cooking the meal. And instead of sitting down with the rest of the family to eat the mourner's meal, he's just saying, hey, let let me have some of that. Very cavalier about his expressions and so forth. And the reason we see Jacob so quickly say, hey, I'll give you some, give me your birthright blessing. Give me the blessing first and I'll give you some. Is because Jacob wants his grandfather and his father to be honored and respected. Esau could care less about respecting him. He just wants something to eat. The offense that is taking place here cannot be overstated. This is an incredible offensive thing taking place. Um, And I do not have difficulty understanding how God can come away from this event saying words like, Esau, I hate, Jacob, I love. I, I don't have any difficulty with that at all. I think God wanted to see Abraham respected as well for who he knew him to be. And here's Esau not rendering any respect whatsoever for it. Now, I don't know if you've ever had any kind of thing like this ever happen in your family before, but I've had just a touch of this in my life, and I think the reason why God permitted me to have this in my life was so that I would get a sense to understand what this passage of Scripture is about. I've, I've had many incidents in my life in which that God has recalled the memory of those incidents when I go through the Torah portions to help me to understand more of what's going on. And in this particular case... I had a sibling who decided to disrespect my mother. And I was actually a little surprised as to what my reaction was. And by the way, I love my sibling. There's no question about it. I I love him. But when I saw this disrespect for my parent, specifically for my mother, the righteous indignation, and that's the best way I would describe this, the righteous indignation that rose up in me was as powerful of anything I've ever experienced in my soul to where I was ready to cut this person off for the remainder of their life and with no qualifications whatsoever because of the blatant, willful disregard this person had done to where that I I wouldn't even listen to them again. Um, We were able to resolve the conflict, by the way, because I suggested to them that they would have to apologize and they would have to to receive forgiveness from my parent. And they did. They secured forgiveness. And I said, okay, great. Everything's over. It's like it never happened. But had they not apologized, had they not received forgiveness, had that issue had remained in standing, um, I had sufficient strength in my will to have carried out those words forever, for into eternity. That's how strongly I felt uh, the righteous indignation about this thing and as to what had taken place. I would remind everybody 
that one of the most powerful commandments God gives to us, the fourth commandment, excuse me, the fifth commandment, is you will honor your father and your mother. God puts that at the rank of the Ten Commandments. And he specifically says, it's, we call it the commandment with promise, that if you will honor your father and mother, your days will be prolonged. If you dishonor your father and mother, disrespect your father and mother, your days will be shortened. There is a very direct component in that commandment and in the results. And as a, as a sibling, when I saw my other sibling disrespecting our parent, uh, th- there was a righteousness in me that said that it is only right that as they cut them off, they will be cut off. As they have disrespected, their life will be shortened equally as well. Um, I didn't do it out of, because I was trying to follow the biblical principle. I'm telling you innately within me, within my soul, it was there. So when I read this portion about Esau coming in and understanding the context that this was at Abraham's funeral and that he was disregarding Abraham. He was disrespectful of Abraham. Even at the day when they were memorializing, when they were supposed to be mourning the loss of him, and he held it in complete disregard. The only thing he was interested in was filling his belly. It's like, I understand the feelings of Jacob to say, sell me your birthright. I won't give you anything until you give me your birthright so that I can render our grandfather correctly. And I can understand God's reaction to where he said, Esau, I hated uh, Jacob, I loved. I can see this and I can understand it. I don't know that I can necessarily go beyond qualifying it for the righteousness, but I certainly understand that part of it uh, for it. I hope that you never in your family ever have what we call an Esau-Jacob moment, but these things do happen in families. They're not beyond the realm of possibility, and they are things that do, in fact, happen. And here's a biblical example of one such event taking place. Um, it now shifts the story. It, it tells the story of when they were young men, but now it shifts the story and begins to talk a little bit more about Isaac and his life and in which that he has to relocate from where he's at, and he has to go down and live near the Philistines, the the Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, toward the coast. And um, in so doing, he makes the same mistake that his father Abraham did when when Abraham went down to visit Pharaoh, where he convinced Sarah to say, no, you're just my sister, don't say my, because he was fearful somebody was going to kill him to steal his wife. Well, Isaac makes this same mistake. He takes his same counsel, does the same thing with Abimelech and tells Rebecca, said, just say you're my sister, you know, so I don't get killed uh, because you're a beautiful woman. Um, and he makes the same mistake. Again, let me just repeat this, that the Bible is not afraid to show you the weaknesses and the character flaws in the heroes of the scripture. They're real people. I mean, if we were really making this up, well, we'd just make him into a superhero and we wouldn't reveal any of his mistakes. But because it's truth and it's real stuff, we get to see the real stuff. We get to see the real character of who the guy is. And the guy has fears and concerns and he tells a little white lie here thinking everything's going to be okay and it backfires on him and he has to pay a price for it. And in this particular case... um, uh, he's down there visiting Abimelech, and he's told them that uh, his wife is really uh, his sister and not his wife. And, but then the king, it, it's some weird thing that happens. The king or somebody, somebody notices that Isaac's in there caressing his sister like it's his wife. And at which point they reveal him to be lying. And so they kick him out. And uh, so he goes, and he's going to be living uh, where he's at. And by the way, while these men were looking at his wife in this way, strange diseases were taking place. Bad things were happening, curses. And so they kicked him out because they, they didn't want the curses of God uh, to be upon them. So they go out. Now, essentially what we have is a story about Isaac digging a series of wells. And Isaac would dig a well and he'd get the water going and he was very successful. And then they didn't like that, and they'd force him to move, and he'd dig another well, and he was very successful from that. And here was the logic 
of the Philistines and the people that were opposed to Isaac. Here was the logic. We know that you dug the well. We have no doubt that you dug the well. But the water you got out of the well, that water from under the ground was coming from our wells. And so when you dug that well, you were just simply accessing the water that belonged to our wells and you were stealing our water. I mean, as nonsensical, nonsensical as that sounds, that was their argument. That was, and by the way, those, you can hear those same nonsensical arguments today in the modern state of Israel if you sit down with a Palestinian and try to understand what are their arguments against the Jewish people and against the nation of Israel. The argument goes something like this. You're stealing our land. You're stealing our stuff. Well, were you actually living on the land before? No, I wasn't really living on the land. My descendants weren't there. And so, but uh, we could have, therefore we know you're stealing the land. I mean, it's that, that kind of logic, you know, and so forth. It's almost like a little kid um, where the little kid picks up a toy and he says, well, I, I have to have that toy because I want to play with that toy. Well, you weren't playing with it before. I know, but you're playing with it, so I don't want you to play with it, so I want to play with it now. That, that kind of silly, nonsensical logic is what was going on in Isaac's life and what will basically transpire in the modern world today. Let me um, step back just for a moment. I want to give you a quick macro teaching on all of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This second part that I've just shared with you is, the se- is, is giving us the second phase of how the patriarchs were handled and dealt with. When Abraham first came into the land, the people in the land said they could tell he was different from them. And so they asked him, what is the difference about you? And he said, well, I'm Hebrew. I'm not from here. I'm from across the river. And all of the things that I'm doing are Hebrew things. The Isaac, he dwelt in the land with the other people. And they said, well, we see you getting blessings. We don't want you getting blessings. You're getting more than us. So we're going to accuse you of stealing our blessings. So you're going to have to leave. You're going to have to get up and leave. And so Isaac would have to be pushed to another area. And then in the story of Jacob that we'll hear, Jacob, it will get to the point where Jacob is hated and he has to flee for his life. The biblical prophetic expression, Jacob's trouble, is part of the teaching, the macro teaching of the fathers, that in the last generation, we go through Jacob's trouble because like Jacob, who had to flee for his life, we will have to flee for our lives. Now, the Jewish people, since they have been scattered in the nations, they have used this as the model to help them to understand all the different lands they have been scattered into. When the Jewish people have moved and migrated into different nations and so forth, the first thing that happens is the inhabitants of the land take a look at them and say, well, you guys are different. Why are you different? We say, well, because we're Hebrews. We're Hebrews. We're the Jewish people. We're of Hebrew descent. We're different from you. Then the next phase that happens is the country begins to say, well, we don't like the way you're being blessed and and prospering, and you can't stay here. You're going to have to move somewhere else. And so they would push them into the ghettos in Europe. And finally, we got to the Holocaust, where they wanted to kill them. And that's what they proceeded to do, to kill the descendants of Jacob. So we see throughout world history And what happens with the fathers happens with the descendants. By the way, that's a core teaching of the Torah. What happens with the fathers will happen with the descendants. Now, here we are, modern messianics today. You all are going through the same experience. When you turn back to the Torah, when you turn back to the teachings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you begin to adopt a Hebrew way of thinking. You stop thinking like a Greek, you start thinking like a Hebrew, and you start picking up Hebrew customs and Hebrew traditions, like Sabbath and Feast of the Lord and, you know, things like that. And so when your family and friends, they see you, they say, you're different from us. What is that? Well, you say, well, these are... Um, Hebrew things. Actually, what most people say, well, they're Jewish things. 
And they, they don't want that. Actually, you need to tell them that the Sabbath is a Hebrew thing, a creation Hebrew thing, and that the Feast of the Lord, they're Hebrew things. They're not just Jewish. Jews do do them, but they're Hebrew things. And they know you're different. Now, the next stage is, well, you, you can't be here. You can't stay here. And some of you got the left foot of fellowship out of the various churches and congregations and community groupings and friendship circles that you had. You got, you got booted. They don't want anything to do with you. They want you out of here. Well, we're all getting ready in the last generation for the Great Tribulation. That will be Jacob's trouble. That's when we flee for our lives. And even members of our own family will be seeking us out for our death, just like Jacob did. So that's a macro-level teaching, a very large teaching across the Torah of all of these portions about the fathers that plays itself out. Let me repeat the great Torah principle. What happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And it applies to every one of us that are spiritually returning as messianic believers to the teachings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those same, that shows you we're the children of promise. We are the descendants. We're the seed of them. We are their descendants. And that's what happens. And in this particular case, the portions tell us about how Isaac is pushed from place to place and these um, uh, wells are then dug. The, 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 just so that you're aware of this, uh, the, um, these three wells, significant wells that, that Isaac will make, and first, the first one was called Isek, the second one is Sitner, and the third is Rehoboth. Um, though meanings of Isek means contention, uh, um, Sitna is uh, obstruction or hating without a cause, and Rehoboth means a broad place or the kingdom. And the temples, we've already had two temples. The belief is that the third temple is the one of the temple of the kingdom, of a broad place. And by the way, the Bible says that when the Messianic kingdom is on the earth, uh, the plain of the earth will be a very broad place. It uses the same language, the same word for the messianic kingdom. Um, and so there's an interesting corollary between uh, the three temples, two of which we've already seen, to the wells that Isaac dug here in their names. So it's a prophetic picture of the temples uh, for it. That's, uh, I don't have time to really go into that in great detail, but that's a fascinating study in this portion um, that pulls together the parallel of Isaac's wells uh, to the temples that would be in the land later on. So now um, uh, Shiva um, is the name that I was looking for there. Um, okay, so we have um, Isaac is there. He's uh, moved away. He's now kind of at peace and so forth. And he's getting older in his age to the point where he can't really see too good. He can't go out and work like he used to. And uh, there comes a day when he is interested in a great meal from his son Esau. So he says to his son Esau, he said, go out, hunt for me, you know, a great dish for me. Come back, prepare it for me, and I'll give you your blessing. Now, the birthright blessing, it, that's the one we're talking about. And so this, we're going to have the story centering on who gets this blessing. Well, when he makes this announcement to Esau to go and get your, get your gear, go out, hunt for me, make me a savory meal, I'll give you the blessing, Rebecca Here's this. Now, if you go back to the early part of the story, it was Rebecca who was told by the Lord that prophesied to her that the older would serve the younger, that the younger is the one who's supposed to get the blessing. He's supposed to get the inheritance. And so she goes to Jacob and says, now follow my instruction. I want you to dress up like your brother. I'll fix a meal. We'll take it in to your father. You'll receive the blessing. Well, Jacob immediately goes into a kind of a defensive mode, and he says, whoa, wait a minute. I'm a completely different guy from Esau. He will certainly uh, recognize, I'm, even though he can't see very good, he'll certainly know it's me. 
And he says, no, 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 we'll put some garments on of Esau's garment. When he touches you, he'll feel that. He'll, have, he'll smell the fragrance of the garments of Esau. He'll know it's you. Um, yeah, but he'll recognize me. No, 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 you stay with me, but I'll get in trouble, Jacob says. Rebecca says, no, let all the harm that comes from this come on me. And she's acting out of a promise and a prophecy that was given to her by God. So Jacob is now going to go about the process of bringing this meal into his father, what appears to be a deceptive thing that's taking place. And by the way, if all we look at is what Jacob does here carrying in the meal, it appears to be a deception. But is it really? If God prophesied this beforehand and God is sovereign in his will and his parent is giving him the authority and directing him to do such a thing on the care of, of, um, of his father, then is he really doing something that wrong? Well, he's, and oh, by the way, Esau, his brother, already sold the birthright to him. Remember back when they were 15? He has no legal claim to it. He surrendered his claim to that. So who is being offended and who is really doing the wrong thing? This is a case of where God is providentially working out his plan. And maybe Esau doesn't quite fully understand the plan, but he's going to conform to God's plan and he's going to put the blessing on Jacob. And that's exactly what happens. Jacob comes in and presents the meal. His father confronts him says, well, you know, you smell like my son Esau. The food is very tasty and so forth, but it sounds like the voice of Jacob to me. And, but he speaks the blessing upon him. And he gets up and he walks out, and then all of a sudden, here comes Esau. Esau prepares his savory dish. He brings it in. By the way, while Isaac, his father, is still digesting the meal that had been brought to him by Jacob. And says, here I am. You know, I'm ready to get my blessing and, and here's the food. And all of a sudden, Isaac says, well, who was the one who came in and I already gave the blessing to? And Esau doesn't understand why he can't get the blessing at this point. Well, one, Isaac is already full, doesn't want to eat another meal, doesn't want to eat the offering that is being presented, the gift that's being given to him. And furthermore, the blessing's already been passed on. And so it says that Esau is very angry at this point. Is Esau justified in his anger? Absolutely not. This is a case of poetic justice. You brought this on yourself, Esau. Your disregard of your father Abraham means you don't get the blessing that came from Abraham that was passed down to your father and it doesn't come to you. You disregarded your father Abraham, therefore you don't get the blessing. And it's where God is providentially working out his own justice. Um, we talk about here the cry of Esau and the anger of Esau. Uh, and there's some commentators that go into this in some detail uh, talking about it. I want to uh, take a few moments and I want to talk about this concept of what we call the cry of Esau. Uh, there's lots of people in their lives that will disregard the Lord. They will do their own thing. They will spend their life saying, well, I have plenty of time to deal with the Lord. Later on, I'm going to do what I want to do right now. And so they proceed to live their life the way, the way they want to live. And then at the end, toward the end, then they come and they say, okay, Lord, I'm ready now to get the blessing from you. I'm now turning to you. Yes, I'm going to do whatever it is you want. And they are dissatisfied with the results. And somehow they're shocked. They're shocked that uh, somehow God doesn't play that game. The fact of the matter is that you so... You reap what you sow. This is a principle of life. Um, I have a, a brother uh, uh, in the faith whose ministry is a very, very unique ministry. He is the guy 
who ministers to men that are on death row. He's the man that will go and speak with them and share the Lord with them. And he has some tremendous stories and testimonies of these men um, on death row who've had these incredible, horrible lives, who, like the thief on the cross, men who are condemned, who turn to the Lord in their last days, and they have these incredible, beautiful testimonies of loving the Lord and the Lord loving them. But one of the conversations that they have is just because you've turned to the Lord doesn't mean that it's going to stop what's going on in your life right now. You have lived this life. You are reaping what you have sown. You have, and, and by the way, you're the one that sold yourself out for something less than God's best. And therefore, you're reaping what you've sown. And you're going to pay the price uh, accordingly for it. And that actually speaks to a level of justice of God, you know, where God, in describing his own character, says the guilty will not go unpunished. Even if you become a believer in your last days, it doesn't mean that you're exempted from the lifetime of things that you've done. Esau has a lifetime of things of disregarding the Lord. We have some specific elements of the measure of the disregard he had earlier in his life. And as he proceeds through his life, we see he didn't follow after the Lord, but at the end, he wants the things of the Lord. He wants all the good stuff. He wants the blessings at the end. The Lord is not mocked by this. Now, I'm not suggesting that God's arm is not is short and can't save the person. What I'm saying is the blessings of life that God is offering, the abundant life that God isn't necessarily going to be received by that person. Not here. Um, because they've walked away from all of these uh, good things that God could have given to them in the course of this life. Uh, this business of, of uh, a person in leadership in the faith and misbehaving, and then him turning around and expecting, well, you know, I'm a believer, you know, and I believe in the promises of God, so you need to forgive me and restore me back to where I was. No, no, no. You can be forgiven, but you're going to reap what you sowed. And like Esau, who was born of Abraham and Isaac, you will live the consequences of your life. Um, this division between Esau and Jacob is fundamental to our faith. Because the reality is that from this point forward, we're going to see a biblical theme begin to take shape that is explaining to us the great disruption uh, that we have in the world today. Uh, to summarize that, uh, we, we say, we call it the teaching of the two seeds. It's, it goes back to the parable of the, there was a, a man who sowed the seed of wheat, but then the enemy came in and he sowed the seed of tares and they grew up together. And so you have this story going through where you see the knowledge of good and evil. They're both paralleling each other. And they keep going through the story of the history of mankind. And you see this line of Esau. You see this line of Jacob. You see the righteous one. And then you see the unrighteous one. And they're all at the same time. And it's this competition between Hasatan and the Messiah. You and I are in the middle. You and I have to make decisions. Do we follow the path of Esau or do we follow the path of Jacob? Are we descendants of Esau or are we descendants of Jacob? This thing will make its all the way out to in the history of where when the children of Israel will come out of Egypt, their arch enemy they have to face in the wilderness is Amalek. Who's Amalek? Oh, he's descendants of Esau. The descendants of Esau have ever since Esau risen up to be in conflict with Jacob. And in the story of Jacob that we'll see shortly in the next few weeks, where Jacob, when he returns from Laban with his family, he has to face Esau. He has to come because Esau is going to threaten his life for getting this birthright blessing. 
And so this great story of the seed of Esau and the seed of Jacob is now going to dominate world history and dominate the whole thing. Many of us who are Torah teachers believe that the ancient conflict of Esau and Jacob is the basis of the conflict between the Palestinians and the Jews today in the modern state of Israel. That's what it is. It's the descendants of Esau still fighting with the descendants of Jacob. Esau had no right to the birthright blessing. He sold it. And yet he claims that it's his. And the Palestinians claim that the promise of the land, the blessings of Abraham, belong to them, not to the Jews. And thus we have the conflict. It's the same ancient conflict that we had back in here. This is a very profound um, um, element and definition that has begun here in this portion that we will find pervasive uh, throughout the scripture. Now, what essentially happens here um, is that uh, Esau is going to find out about that his the birthright blessing has been given to Jacob. And of course, he's very angry. So he begins to threaten to kill Jacob. And Rebekah and Isaac have got to get Jacob out of there because there's nothing stopping Esau from coming and doing that. So Jacob is going to have to flee uh, at this point uh, to get away. And that's how we get um, Jacob departs from Beersheba and heads back to the land of his parents, where his parents came from. Um, I want you to take note, though, of verse 46 um, in, this, uh, in chapter 27, which it speaks just to a moment of, about Esau. It says, and, and, and Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? What she's really referring to is that Esau, he chose whom he wanted to marry. And he married two women, Canaanites. He married two Canaanites. Now, if you remember... The, the line, you know, the reason why they went back and got Rebekah was so that Isaac wouldn't marry a Canaanite. And, and Rebekah is now saying, we need to send Jacob back to the land where we're at so that he, he doesn't marry one of the women of the land here. He doesn't marry a Canaanite. And he will go back, and that's where he'll meet Leah and Rachel. And he will get married again to the descendants of Shem. And again, this goes back to that prophecy given to Noah that uh, the descendants of Shem would rule over the Canaanites, and that's, that's part of the conflict here that's going on into this. Um, the reason why um, I really like this particular verse, what struck me is my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, a very spiritual woman, she would never issue a curse word. In fact, as her grandson growing up with her, never heard a profane word ever come out of her mouth. And there's a standing joke. We had this joke one time. We saw Grandma get very frustrated with Grandpa one day. I mean, really frustrated. Um, she was very spiritual. He was very antagonistic against God. By the way, he accepted the Lord later on in his life. But while things were still going on and we were grandchildren around the house, we saw... Grandpa really get Grandma angry, and Grandma yelled out from the kitchen uh, about, why don't you just go to, and stopped. Now, the whole family took note of this, because this is close as we ever saw to my grandma ever being profane in any way, shape, or form in her speech. And so everybody was yelling out, so what, what did you mean to say there, Grandma? What, where, where did you want Grandpa to go to? Where, where did you want him to go to? And of course, it, she got a chance to think for a moment. She yelled back, heaven. That's where I want him to go, heaven. You know, actually, she wanted him to go to heaven faster. That's really what she was really asking for. But her favorite expression of frustration, especially when we grandchildren would misbehave, I'll never forget was she would say, you're making me tired. Instead of profaning or cussing or, you know, being super angry with her grandchildren, she, and by the way, when grandma said, you're making me tired, we knew we'd crossed the line. We had gone too far. So when I read in here these words, 
Rebecca said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. Based on my grandmother's uh, own testimony, I understand what Rebecca's talking about. I mean, she is at the wit's end. And this was really a very difficult thing. So if you think you got problems in your family up and down somewhere, where, well, just put it in the context that the people is making me tired. And I've never forgotten my grandmother's testimony of that. Again, that's another example of life experience help giving you some of the clues to understand some of the words of life, you know, that are in here. Truly, as the psalmist has said in Psalms 40 and verse 7, um, this is my life. Uh, I come in the volume of the scroll. It is written of me. The, the same expressions, the human expressions, I identify with. You know, these are things in my soul too. You know, feel, things I've seen, heard, and experienced are, are a true part of this story. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, this Torah portion, for the living Torah. Thank you, Lord, for showing us uh, more of this uh, wonderful story of our fathers and our mothers. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to quicken these things under our thinking and build up us in, as your people, as your family, and help us to relate uh, to the instructions and the stories of our ancestors so that we might understand our faith and our relationship with you even better. We ask all of this in the name of Yeshua, Messiah, our coming King. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.